Good morning, this is Nick Augustine with Mark Scroggins here at Scroggins Law Group in Frisco, and we are talking about money and finance during divorce. Hey Nick, how are you today? I'm doing well, Mark, and how are you? So far so good, but it's early. It is early. Too early to tell. Although it's already Thursday, and... It's... And the Texas game is on Saturday against LSU, so it's all good. We're all right, well, you know, I have no skin in that game. So... I do. All so, right. uh, you well, know, hook I'll them. hook them on your behalf. There we go. Perfect. All right. All right. So, <laughs> <laughs> jumping into the wonderful world of divorce, money and finance. Right. We talked about in our last podcast, financial issues are often the things that drive people to divorce and money and finance is certainly at the top of people's mind. They want to know what's going to happen, how they're going to move forward in life. Right. So one of the, one of the questions that comes up all the time is, all the big counties in North Texas, um, with the exception of Tarrant, uh, have standing orders. Mm-hmm. Okay. And those standing orders have provisions related to what you can and what you cannot spend money on. So you can, you can spend money, uh, in the ordinary course of business. You can spend money related to attorney's fees. Uh, you can spend money on your ordinary and reasonable living expenses. Okay. Those are all fine. The question becomes, you know, what is ordinary and reasonable exactly. and and it all depends on really kind of maintaining the status quo because what where this comes up for the most part at, is at the very beginning of the case and when you're going into a temporary order hearing and it's important for people to remember that a, a temporary order hearing on the finance side is primarily about maintaining the status quo okay so the court wants to make sure to maintain uh, all the assets so that nobody ends up in default on anything. We don't end up losing an asset or something. Um, and nobody wants to hurt a business. So if you are, um, if you are in a business, let's say that, um, let's say that you're in the business of flipping houses. Okay. And that is what you do. And you usually have, three to five going at any one time. Does that mean that you cannot uh, get into another another property during that period of time? No, it doesn't. Understand that any, any acquisition, let me back up for just a second. It makes it a hell of a lot easier if it is within a corporation. So if I've got a company that's called Scroggins Investments and mm-hmm. Scroggins Investments is in the business of flipping houses and then I get divorced, okay? It doesn't mean that Scroggins Investments cannot continue to operate as it has. As a matter of fact, it should. If you don't, then it lowers the value and then it looks like you're intentionally trying to reduce the value of a, of an asset that would be subject to division, okay? So you just need to go in understanding that, you know, any transaction that takes place, especially during the pendency of a divorce, is going to be scrutinized. So don't do something freaking stupid. If you are a, a sharp business person, you know, don't go out and, uh, you know, buy a house that's clearly, you know, at the top of the market and then go in and drop another couple hundred thousand into it, which will, you'll never get out just to show a loss. Okay. That stuff can be sniffed out pretty easy. Okay. Um, yeah. And the other thing is, you know, if your ordinary, ordinary living expenses are that the kids are going to private school, let's say you've got a kid in Hockaday and you've got a kid in St. Mark's, doesn't mean stop paying the tuition. Okay. That is going to continue to be paid. You know, it, it does mean that unless you and the other party agree that you're going to, let's say that you've got a guy's trip or a girl's trip coming up that is not already paid for. 
Okay. Should you go on that? That's a whole nother question. Uh, typically the answer is going to be no. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because that can be viewed as wasting of community assets. The, it's important to remember the, the rules of the game change once a divorce is in play. Right. Absolutely. So let's take a look at the difference in income Mm -hmm. potential between spouses. If I am not the higher income earning spouse, um, and I'm not the biggest asset earner, what assets should I be looking at? That's a great question. Okay, so two assets that both have a value of $1 million do not necessarily have the same value to you today. Here's an example. If I've got a $1 million in a 401k or an IRA or some other type of retirement account, okay, that has a totally different value to the uh, non-income earning spouse than a million of cold hard cash sitting in a savings account. Why? Well, because it is the time value of money, honey. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't you can't get access to that without taking you know taking a hit. So, if I were to pull a million dollars on that, out of that four hundred one k, I can absolutely do it. But it's going to be taken at my tax rate plus ten percent. You know, so you're going to get hit. You also take away. The ability for it to continue to build. A million dollars cold hard cash in a checking account or savings account is going to be after tax money, first of all. So the taxes have already been paid. Plus, if you have been the either non-income earning spouse or the significantly lesser earning uh, income spouse, then liquidity is going to be an issue. And so the value of assets that have liquidity are going to be more attractive, you know? So you may or may not want to keep a house. One of the things that I see that uh, that people do is people get too attached to things, okay? And it's, well, this is the house that the kids have grown up in. You know what? So what, okay? Kids are resilient. You are the one that is placing that value on it, not the kids so much. Right. Kids will roll with it. They might not like it as much, but you need to make smart economic decisions for you and your children going forward. Don't be a castle keeper when you don't have the money to keep it up. So here I'm talking about clearly the non-moneyed spouse, okay, in that regard. The one who has been a high in, a wage, you know, income earner, let's say that he's making, you know, three to 500,000 a year. Well, guess what? He can afford to keep it if he wants to. Sure. Okay, or she can afford to keep it if she wants to. The other one really can't unless you've just got a boatload of money sitting there, but you're going to burn through it. Especially with just taking care and maintenance of a large property. It's huge. It's a lot to deal with. And a lot of people are holding on to that to the kids. And I can see how the kids will come back to the roost and say, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. But if you, you know, flipped it over and said, I'm getting a condo, they might think, hey, this is really cool. Now we have a pool that we didn't have before. Right. Yeah. There, there are lots of different, there are lots of different options to consider there. But I mean, there are also, you know, there's a, uh, there are financial planning people that also have an additional, um, designation and what's called CDFA, certified divorce financial analysts. They're great. Those folks can be utilized at times too to let you know, uh, when you're looking at a multitude of different assets, what are the tax consequences of those? So, so what makes more sense? You know, so, you know, is it is it better to keep a house that's got, you know, a half a million dollars in equity in it? Or is it better to keep, 
you know, an, uh, an oil and gas property that's paying you royalties on a monthly basis? What is the, you know, what are the tax consequences of both of those? If you sell the house to move into something else or just the continued getting of the royalty. So there are tax implications on all kinds of different things. And that's one thing where having someone who's a CDFA or making sure that your CPA is involved is a very, very important move because I can tell you that I don't give tax advice. Okay. It's in my contract. I don't do it because right. I'm not an expert in that area. I am an expert in the area of family law. That does not include the tax ramifications of that. So I always tell my clients when we get to that point, you need to talk to your tax accountant about that. You need to talk to your tax lawyer about that. If we've got different business entities that are involved, we need to talk about all those types of things and make sure that we bring in the proper third parties to discuss just what is the impact of, of taking certain assets. Right. And they'll work with people who have not previously in the past always worked with the financial person because one spouse might have had that role in the marriage and the other might not have. Yeah. And I mean, here's one thing. I mean, if you're open to it, you know, a lot of the times the CDFAs will come in and do it, uh, do the analysis and, and assist you. And they're basically doing it as a loss lead. Mm -hmm. Okay. They sometimes will charge you nothing or next to nothing with the hope that they will be able to manage your, manage your money going forward. What's and so, right. yeah, so it can become, uh, it can become pretty easy. Now you need to make sure that you get a good CDFA. Otherwise it's just a waste of time. Right. So. Exactly. One of the things that uh, when we look at, when we, you know, moving on to our next topic here, but, you know, we're looking at different assets of value today versus future interests. Um, we look at a lot of investments and people right. think, you know, how are these performing now? How can they be performing in the future? And, you know, one thing that I always grew up with was never invade the principal. And people are really scared to mess with investments um, and making, you know, so talking about buying and selling assets and investing in the divorce. We touched on a little of this, but what are some more thoughts on that? Well, so this also ties into the standing orders. You know, you're not supposed to change any beneficiaries on anything, just mm -hmm. like you're not going to change uh, everything in withholding. So let's say if you've got a 401k and a profit sharing plan at your particular work, and that is the money that is being taken out, well, mm -hmm. uh, taken out of the check on a, you know, bi-monthly basis or however you're, however you're paid. Uh, generally, that's not going to be changed unless you need to. Okay. And when I say, if you need to, you need to make sure that there's an agreement between the parties or, or the attorneys have reached an agreement and submitted a rule 11 agreement, or you need to ask the court for that kind of relief to say that, okay, well, if I've got to pay this, this needs to, needs to stop. Now, as far as buying or selling of assets, that kind of is like what we talked about just a minute ago. Well, like if I had a house flipping business, uh, you know, they can continue doing what is the ordinary course of their business. If, if I personally, okay, not under the auspices of a separate entity, am doing a bunch of, um, I mean, you don't see it as much anymore, but you know what, like the, when there was the day trading yep. uh, craze, uh, I would, I would say that you're going to basically put a halt on that. Right. Um, just simply because you can't have one person that is managing the community property for everyone on that kind of scenario. So it's really on a case by case basis. I mean, for the most part, the key thing to remember is you can continue operating your business as you normally would with an asterisk by that, that, you know, if you're a day trader, if you're a house flipper in your individual capacity, okay, not within a corporation that is a corporation or partnership or LLC or whatever that is separately funded. Okay. It's not just funded by the community estate. 
Um, that's a different, that's a different beast. Okay. And so talk to your lawyer about that in detail. And that is one of the suggestions that I would make, um, is think about your financial piece. Okay. Um, and sometimes, you know, I've got, I've got some divorces where it's just, just property, but the vast majority of them have both a property and a kid component. And people tend to focus more on the, the kid component because that's what they're the most concerned about. And, I totally understand that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I went through a divorce. I get that. That's what I was concerned about too. But you really need to be concerned about that property piece on the back end as well. And it needs to be addressed up front because that's going to dictate some of the strategies that you're going to implement through the course of the litigation. Absolutely. All right. Here's another question. What about people who may be looking at additional job training, schooling, skills or training, maybe someone who worked during the marriage but wasn't working for a higher income they were maybe working for spending money well so uh texas has spousal maintenance which is akin to alimony okay spousal maintenance in uh in texas is used in a couple different ways it is awarded if the uh one spouse does not receive enough money or property or assets out of the division of the community estate to meet their quote unquote minimum reasonable needs. So what exactly are their minimum reasonable needs, Nick? Great question. Who knows? Okay. It's subjective. It's very subjective. But if you get three, four hundred thousand dollars, you know, that's a difficult sell. Um, if the other person, if y'all are kind of, you know, similarly situated there, um, if you've got something where, let's say, um, where you see this more is where someone didn't get, maybe it's a, uh, maybe you've got a high moneyed spouse, okay? But they don't have, you know, they spent everything they made, okay? That is more of a situation where you're going to see it. And the, the spousal maintenance statute is primarily there as a rehabilitative statute, okay? Meaning it is to help you get the training you need, get the support you need to be able to re-enter the workforce. You know, you might have uh, a degree in corporate communications from the University of Texas, but you haven't used it in 20 years. Right. Guess what? You know, time to real, push it off. Well, it's real. Yeah. And it's real difficult to get back into the workforce. You, you are going to need additional training. Just right. like, you know, say if you were a, um, say if you were an IT person, but you were an IT person and you hadn't done anything in 10 years. Well, just think about how much everything has changed. I mean, so a lot of that stuff is, is obsolete now, you know, so all of that changes. Now, the other area, uh, and we won't go into this today. We've talked about it before that, uh, spousal maintenance can be utilized is on a punitive basis if there's a fa finding of family violence. Right. Okay. So that's a whole nother issue, but typically, uh, you need to look at how much money are you going to be able to get out of the uh, out of the disbursement of the community assets to see can you afford to put your bat your yourself into school if you need need to what type of additional schooling do you need I mean is it like uh, you just need to go to a few different seminars or do you need to finish an undergraduate degree I mean so what's what's needed do you need to take uh, you know get vocational schooling to be able to do something so there are a whole bunch of different questions and a bunch of moving parts in there and so. These are just, it's important for people to realize that these are talking points, okay? These are things that you need to discuss with your lawyer about 
what the hell do I do in this regard because I'm lost? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Final question is about attorney's fees and under what circumstances may the court order one to pay the other's fees? Well, that's completely within the discretion of the court. Okay. So let's talk about this issue because I think there are, frankly, there are are judges out there that make horrible decisions about this. Um, You have, let me see how the best way is to put this. Generally, in a divorce case, the let's take a situation where you've got one person has been a stay-at-home and the other has not. Mm-hmm. My experience over the last 26-plus years in this has been that the person who brings home the vast majority of the money generally is the person who is controlling the finances. They're the one who understands uh what we bring in, what goes out, how it goes out, what's being put into, you know, investments, what the investments are, all this kind of stuff. So they generally control that piece. So when a divorce comes down the pipe, who has to do more of the work to figure out what the hell is going on? The non-moneyed spouse, right? So the expenditure of attorney's fees is not equal. It shouldn't be equal in that regard. And a power play that is used frequently by the moneyed spouse is to delay and to drag feet and make it difficult to get a hold of things. And here's one of the areas that judges make a huge mistake. Okay. They will say, well, I'm going to equalize the attorney's fees. Okay. There is no such provision in the family code for equalizing attorney's fees. Mm -hmm. There are provisions for the award of interim attorney's fees, and there are provisions for the award of attorney's fees at the conclusion of a case. Interim fees, as long as you should, the attorney who is seeking them should know what the hell they're doing. And this is where attorneys make a big mistake. They don't go in providing the proper evidence for a court to make that determination. And they need to be able to show what they need, why they need it, and where can you get it, okay? If they can't meet that burden, they shouldn't get it. Also, judges should have the cojones to actually look at something and say, they're entitled to get that out of the community because they are. It's community property, right? okay? They're just as entitled as the other. However, they need to come in meeting their burden, and the court needs to look at it and, and not do that. Well, I'm going to equalize that, and I'm going to... No, no, no. Adhere to the law. Do what is required. If the proof has been been made, show it. Unfortunately, you get certain judges that will refuse to make awards that are clearly necessary and reasonable because they use that as a weapon to try to force a case to settle. And sometimes it does force a case to settle because there's no other source of income. So if you've got a case that needs to go to trial and there's clearly the money there to say, pay an additional $50,000 for the trial that's about to come up. But the judge says, no, 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 I'm not going to award that. What's going to happen? It's going to force that non-moneyed spouse to take a settlement that he or she should not have had to given access to the community. So what's their, what, what is their ability to challenge that next to zero? Why? Because they don't have the damn funds. Right. You know, so they're cutting it off. It is an abuse of discretion in my in my opinion. And I've had that discussion 
with a few judges. I would like to see some judges step up and make sure that they do that the right way. Now, having said that, that's my personal bitch about some <laughs> judges. That is not to paint that, paint everybody with a wide swath because the vast majority of judges do not do that. The vast majority of judges do an excellent job in that regard and they do not penalize a non-moneyed spouse just to try to clear their docket. Okay. Vast, vast, vast majority do not do that. Mm-hmm. There are some who do and I wish they would quit that. As a matter of fact, at the advanced family law seminar just a few weeks ago, there was a discussion about that of, of, uh, you know, equalizing attorney's fees. Okay. No such beast. There is no such beast. So anyway, or call it level the playing field. Well, right. I mean, the the spirit of the law is not necessarily what the law states. Well, that's you know. Here's the thing: the law is very clear. You can get interim fees and you can get attorney's fees. There is no equalizing. Leveling the playing field, I'm fine with because that makes sure that both people get what they need out of the community Mm -hmm. to do what's necessary. That's fine. That's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. But not an equalization because it is not equal. Right. So, a lot of complex issues. Reasons, it is re- many, many, many reasons to hire a board-certified family law attorney, right? With uh, experiences in you know, dec- lots of. I'm not going to say how many years, but lo- many, many, many years. <laughs> there we go. In uh, high stakes <laughs> and high conflict, high net worth divorce issues, where these things can get very complicated and get get out of hand, spinning like a snowball rolling down a hill. If right. you don't have someone who knows what they're doing. Mark, for more information, if people want to get a hold of you, what should they do to get in contact? Always can uh, call me at the office, 214-469-3100, or you can send me an email at mark at scrogginslawgroup.com. All right. Well, thank you all for listening, and please also thank you for sharing this podcast recording that you may find on social media or on one of your uh, podcast channels. We appreciate your time, and thank you very much.